Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name is Philippe Nuren, and I'm joined as always by Fergal Armstrong. So Fergal, in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to follow on from our previous episode on long-acting injectable buprenorphine, or LAIBs. So in this episode, I thought we'd talk about the practicalities of starting someone on an LAIB. So say we have the hypothetical patient in our waiting room. How do you select a patient for LAIB and what is some of the thoughts and processes that you go through when you're about to commence someone on an LAIB? So we've got to bear in mind that we're looking at starting someone on buprenorphine, right? So they've got to be, they've got to be able to tolerate buprenorphine and there can't be any, any contraindications to buprenorphine use. And so first of all, what are the contraindications to buprenorphine? We know that there's basically you know, three of them and there's, it's, it's, it's a significant liver disease characterized as child QC, um, significant cardiorespiratory dysfunction and or allergy to either the product or any of its excipients. For LAIB, we also need to consider the uh, the age restrictions. I think um, Buvidal is licensed for people over 16 and Sublocade's licensed for people over 18. So if there are no contraindications to buprenorphine, I think it would be then wise to, to have in, at hand already the blood test results that you would expect during any assessment of any patient with opioid use disorder, LFTs and COAG profile, et cetera, it would be reasonable to get those bloods done for any patient in your service. And it's very reassuring to have a knowledge of somebody's LFTs and to know that at least you're the patient in front of you is not in child QC, liver failure, before you actually start LAIB. The question is, would you start LAIB or would you start buprenorphine sublingual therapy without knowing what an LFT is? Would you delay the treatment? And I personally would not delay treatment. You know, I think that when we see patients who are, and they want to be inducted, this is a treatment window of opportunity that should not be squandered because if they walk out of your office and they're not on treatment, you're potentially condemning them to another two, five, ten years of ongoing opioid use disorder. So I wouldn't delay treatment. But I'd certainly want to know what the LFTs are doing, what the COAG profile is doing at some point in the early stages of, of, of treatment. So we've, we've dealt with the contraindications to buprenorphine. Then I think we need to look at the suitability of the patient for buprenorphine. So we know that buprenorphine is a partial agonist, which means it gives mental clarity. We also know that buprenorphine has, can, in, in patients, at higher doses create this wired, agitated feeling where they just feel uncomfortable and agitated. And they often use the phrase, it's difficult to describe how I feel, doctor, but I just don't feel right and I'm uncomfortable. So those are two key symptoms that we need to be watchful for because remember, mental clarity is great if you're a neurosurgeon. It's great if you're doing a high-powered executive job, but mental clarity is not necessarily the best thing to have in your life if you are suffering from significant psychosocial adversity and emotional or physical trauma. So, you know, in, that, in those groups of patients, I often wonder, would methadone be a better treatment option? Because remember, methadone is a full agonist and also an NMDA receptor antagonist and gives people a warm cotton wool blanket within which they just feel more comfortable and they can cope better with life. So we need to think about the patient in front of us and would they fit better methadone 
or would they would they do well on buprenorphine either sublingually or also in a long-acting injectable format? Now, the next question then is, how do you know that the patient in front of you is going to cope with this wired, agitated feeling? And the short answer is, unless if they are treatment naive, you're not going to know. You just cannot predict whether or not they're going to experience the symptom. So it's, it's useful to, for me to, to have a chat with a patient and, and talk to them about the potential side effects of buprenorphine and to ask them if they've had previous experience of buprenorphine. And I'm reassured, I'm, I'm, I'm reassured when it comes to inducting onto LIIB, if people tell me, yeah, they've been on buprenorphine before and they've been on high doses and it hasn't caused them any problems. And one of the useful mnemonics that I think about for the side effects of buprenorphine in particular is, is, is uh, SHINC, S-H-I-N-C. So Sundays and holidays included, that's what that means, it's an old Irish term, Sundays and holidays included. So sweating is a, is a, is a symptom. And a lot of people think that uh, you know, sweating is, is, is due to opioid withdrawal. Well, actually, it's a symptom of buprenorphine use. Headaches, H for headaches, insomnia, I for insomnia, N for nausea, and C for constipation. And on top, and that's apart from the agitation and this wired feeling that we're talking about. So it's important to tell patients that these are the potential side effects of buprenorphine. And of course, if you're giving them an LAIB, those potential side effects could last days or weeks, depending on the, the, the dose at which they experience these side effects. So that's that's the second stage. So firstly, we've excluded contraindications. Secondly, we've decided on the suitability of the patients. So they're not, they're not buprenorphine naive and they're not significantly traumatized and they would benefit from mental clarity. And then we need to start talking about patient expectation. It's really important to understand that the kinetics of the LAIB differ from the kinetics of sublingual buprenorphine. So with sublingual buprenorphine at, at doses of, you know, 12, 16, 24 milligrams, you get significant peaks within an hour to two hours, and then you get trough levels. And you can actually see people with trough levels dipping below one. So you don't get a smooth uh, experience of plasma buprenorphine throughout the day. So you can get really quite high on sublingual buprenorphine. And then come the next dose, you can actually feel quite uncomfortable when we're ready for the next dose, depending on, depending on the individual patient. And so you get these peaks and troughs within a day. With long-acting injectable buprenorphine, with Bruvidal weekly, you get the peaks and troughs within a week. With a monthly, you get them within a month. And with Sublocade, you get them within monthly. So patients will feel differently on it. You know, you have to tell them, this will feel different to you. And patients will tend to interpret any symptom they experience during induction as withdrawal. So it's really important to understand what is a withdrawal symptom and what is a, is a side effect symptom. What would you say to that, Philippe, and how would you describe withdrawal symptoms and how would you assess those? Well, basically, the, the withdrawal symptoms that I'm worried about with a patient are increased craving for um, uh, opioids, opiates, uh, sometimes the classic opiate withdrawal symptoms, which can sometimes be piloerection, rhinorrhea, yawning, 
pretty much most of the symptoms that one would see on the cow scale or the clinical opiate withdrawal scale would be the physiological markers of opiate withdrawal. So those are the things I usually talk to my patients about as the signs of uh, opiate withdrawal. But a lot of the withdrawal symptoms that some of our patients talk about can also be psychological discomfort as well. And you've talked about that wired sensation. And a lot of the time, especially on the higher doses of Suboxone, but also on the LAIBs as well, one does see patients who are more aware and are uh, quite upset and sometimes stressed about being so alert. So it is very, very important prior to commencing these medications to forewarn the patient about what will happen and how to mitigate against these symptoms. Because with these depot injections, we've talked about the benefits. The side effect is it is a depot. It is not a daily dose of medication. So once we have started this treatment, we are on it for a, a, a number of either a week or a few weeks if it's the monthly preparation. So it's mm. super important for the patient to be a bit aware of what they're in for. Is is that similar to your practice, Virgil? Absolutely. I mean, if I could just hone in on the, the withdrawal issue, um, it's really important to understand or to allow patients to understand the difference between side effects of buprenorphine and withdrawal. So uh, you've mentioned the CAR scale. That's a very useful way of of, of categorizing the severity of a withdrawal. But, you know, I, I also have a useful mnemonic for opioid withdrawal, which is ARMY fines. And these relate to the DSM-5 symptoms of opioid withdrawal. So A for aches and pains, R for rhinorrhea, M for mood disturbance, Y for yawning, F for fever, I for insomnia, N for nausea, D for diarrhea, and S for sweating. So we see that sweating is both a symptom of opioid withdrawal and also buprenorphine overdose or as, as a side effect of, of buprenorphine. There are a couple of physical signs that are very difficult to manage or to make up factitiously. So goosebumps, otherwise known as cutis anserinus or anserina rather, goosebumps, piloerection, medriasis, and borborygmy. These are the symptoms of uh, or these are the signs rather of opioid withdrawal that I rely on to make a very objective assessment of the patient. Because you can fake a yawn, you can run around the block and you can start sweating and you can become tachycardic and hypertensive. Uh, and you can tell you can tell someone, yeah, you've had diarrhea. But you know, if you've got a quiet belly, it's unlikely you're in opioid withdrawal. <clears throat> so once we understand the symptoms of opioid withdrawal and the symptoms of buprenorphine side effects, then the timing of the emergence of these symptoms is, is also important. So <clears throat> all LAIB products create a peak of delivery of buprenorphine with, within 24 hours. It is very unusual to have opioid withdrawal in that first injection period because you are experiencing the peak. Now, remember with Buvidel monthly, the peak's at six hours, but it takes a couple of days for that decline for all LAIB to occur. And some patients will experience that and will actually feel that. And so they think they're, 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 they're experiencing lower doses of opioid withdrawal, sorry, lower doses of buprenorphine. And so they think they're going into withdrawal because they're not experiencing the high that, that high-dose buprenorphine gives them. And so they think, oh, it must be withdrawal. Well, it's not because remember, we know that opioid withdrawal occurs 
at doses of plasma buprenorphine less than one nanogram per mil. And so we know that LAIB creates a sustained elevation of buprenorphine above one nanogram per mil. So you're not actually an opioid withdrawal. You might not be experiencing the same potency of buprenorphine as you were used to with the sublingual, but it's certainly not opioid withdrawal. And we also know that in the second half of the time window of the first injection, that's when you're possibly going to develop the emergence of opioid withdrawal symptoms. So in the first half, I, I tend to look for side effects of buprenorphine. And in the second half of that time window, I tend to look for withdrawal symptoms. But there is one proviso, and that is precipitated withdrawal. So can you explain to us what precipitated withdrawal is and how it occurs? So precipitated withdrawal is the effect of buprenorphine against a full agonist. So we've talked in an earlier episode about how buprenorphine is a partial agonist to the mu receptor, but it has a high affinity for the mu receptor and it will displace a lot of the full agonists off the mu receptor. So the classic example is if you've recently had a full agonist such as heroin or methadone, and very shortly after you take some buprenorphine, the buprenorphine will preferentially bind to the mu receptor, displacing the full agonist off the receptor and thereby causing a rapid and painful withdrawal for the patient. It is very distressing for the patient. It is not life-threatening, but it is very distressing and uncomfortable. And if a patient is not told or warned about this, uh, they, it can cause them to lose faith and trust in you. And it can often be a trigger for not continuing in treatment. So it is can thus be very distressing for both the patient and the prescriber. Uh, have yeah. I, how, how's that for an explanation for That's, that's great. Fatal? So that's a great explanation, but it does highlight then the, the, the benefits of having this bridging of sublingual buprenorphine. Um, and so if, you've, if you're appropriately bridged on sublingual buprenorphine and then from that you then jump on to LAIB, you shouldn't really have any issues with, um, with uh, opioid withdrawal or precipitated withdrawal. But if you're doing a direct induction, that's when it can become an issue. So if you don't leave long enough uh, a time period between the last exposure to the full agonist, the full mu agonist, and then the initiation of buprenorphine in the LAIB, you then could get precipitated withdrawal. Now, it's very tempting to say, oh, well, these are the recommended times. I tend not to rely on times. I tend to rely on clinical assessment. And I think the key thing is to say that you've got to be in withdrawal, at least mild withdrawal, before you start an LIIB product. Or before you start, for instance, the, and remember the only licensed product for uh, induction is weekly Bruvidal. So you've got to be in mild withdrawal before you start weekly Bruvidal. Because if you don't, you then run the risk of precipitated withdrawal. So if someone is inducting onto Bruvidal and they, they say, I'm in withdrawal, again, that it, you need to understand the timing. So if the, remember that the, the T max of weekly Bruvidal is 24 hours. So it takes 24 hours for the, the peak effect of, of the buprenorphine in weekly buvidal to actually kick in. So symptoms before 24 hours, are they withdrawal or are they precipitated withdrawal or are they that escalating feeling of wiredness? So 
you know, that agitation. And I think if, if someone's got the signs of withdrawal, the signs of opioid withdrawal, which I've already described, which are, you know, dilated pupils, pilar erection, goosebumps, and bulbarygmy, and if they're saying they've got diarrhea in that first 24-hour period and up to 24 hours, then yes, I would accept that that could be precipitated withdrawal. If at, at 24 hours they're beginning to feel a bit agitated and wired and they don't have the signs and they don't have diarrhea, well, is it is it actually withdrawal or is it simply this, this, the side effects, the emergence of side effects of high-dose buprenorphine, which includes, remember, sweating, uh, headaches, insomnia, nausea, constipation, and also this agitation. And then as the dose de declines again back towards that, that level of one nanogram per mil, then then in the, and that would be in the latter half of the time window of the first injection. Then you would experience. Then you would expect to see potentially the reemergence of withdrawal symptoms. So understanding the kinetics of the product, and understanding the timing of the symptoms, and understanding exactly what those symptoms are, are absolutely crucial in managing that first injection. And I suppose to summarize, you need to you need to say to patients, look, your experience of Buvidal and your experience of sublocate is going to be different from the experience you've had in the past with sublingual buprenorphine. And it's going to be different from your experience that you've had with other full mu agonists, for instance, uh, heroin or methadone. That's uh, excellent information, Fergal. So basically what we've talked about is selecting patients, educating patients, managing patient expectation, how to induct on LAIBs and what to watch out for, including precipitated withdrawal. Mm. What about follow-up? How frequently would you review a patient on LAIB and when would you consider bringing them back in for their second injection? So theoretically, it all depends on the, on the duration of the product and the half-life of the product. So for weekly Bruvidal, you would need to review them at least every week. And for monthly Bruvidal, you could, and for Sublocate, you could push it out to a month. But on that first injection, I always like to review patients halfway through the time window. So if I've given a weekly Bruvidal on day one and then day three, day four, I just like to see how they're getting on. But I, and, and likewise for the monthly uh, week two, I like to see how they're getting on. In my experience, um, the, the, uh, the first injection doesn't actually necessarily hold people uh, for the entire month or for the entire week. Be, uh, and certainly that's the case with Bruvidal and less so with uh, Sublocate. And remember, we're talking about the first injection. The, and we're comparing that with the kinetics of steady state. And it takes four or five injections to get to steady state. So you don't truly understand the full effect of the LAIB product in question until you've given four or five injections. So it can take a matter of uh, a month to even five months to actually get people stabilized on these products. So during that time, I'm fairly flexible with, with you know, my reviews. And I say to people, especially after I've given them, given them the injection, I, first of all, I say, don't drive. That's another key thing. On the day of the injection, I recommend that people don't drive. But then thereafter, I can say, look, you know, just give me a ring and I'll have a chat with you over the phone and I will schedule you the appointment for halfway in the time window and then for the first, second and third, and then it can gradually lengthen out. But it's also important to understand that all, all of the troublesome symptoms that people can experience on LAIB during the titration phase tend to lessen and be, and be less severe when people are stabilized at steady state. But that does take time. And remember, it's the fourth or the fifth injection for both types of products. So it can be a, it can be a 
sometimes arduous journey to get people to a, a level where they're very comfortable. But then the corollary is also true where people can be, you know, magically stabilized just after one injection. You know, you just don't know. That's, that's very true. Um, and in the episode today, uh, we've talked a great deal in the practicalities of, of starting someone on LAIB, patient selection, patient education, induction on the LAIB, reviewing, monitoring, and the contraindication. So it's been, again, an information-filled episode of Cracking Addiction. Thanks again, Fergal, for sharing your expertise with us and to our listeners and viewers. Bye for now. Thank you.